Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Naomi. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Here is uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby's explanation of why the United Kingdom joined the, Europe the European Union. <clears throat> the Foreign Office is pro-Europe because it is really anti-Europe. The civil service was united in its desire to make sure that the common market didn't work. That's why we went into it. What, what are you talking about? asks James Hacker, MP and Minister for Administrative Affairs. Minister! Appleby replies, Britain has had the same foreign policy objective for at least the last 500 years, to create a disunited Europe. In that course, we have fought with the Dutch against the Spanish, with the Germans against the French, with the French and the Italians against the Germans, with the French against the Germans and the Italians. Divide and rule, you see. Why should we change now when it's worked so well? That's ancient history, surely, interjects Hacker. Yes, and current policy, replies Appleby. We had to break the whole thing up, so we had to get inside. We tried to break it up from the outside, but that wouldn't work. Now that we're inside, we can make a complete pig's breakfast of the whole thing. Set the Germans against the French, the French against the Italians, the Italians against the Dutch. The Foreign Office is terribly pleased. It's just like old times. Horrified Hacker answers, but, but surely you're committed to the European ideal. Really, Minister? <laughs> Chuckles Appleby. If not, then why are we pressing for an increase in membership? Asks Hacker. For the same reason, answers Appleby. It's just like the United Nations, in fact. The more members it has, the more arguments it can stir up. The more futile and impotent it becomes. What appalling cynicism, remarks a deeply shaken hacker. Yes, we call it diplomacy, minister. <laughs> that was a scene from the BBC comedy Yes, Minister, episode 5, series 1, which went to air on the 24th of March, 1980. So, yeah, nearly 40 years ago. In the light of the UK's desperate trouble over Brexit, many people have found this skit to be ironically helpful. <laughs> the phrase that Sir Humphrey Appleby used, divide and rule, or divide and conquer, uh, is indeed, a hacker was right, is indeed ancient history. Uh, the phrase, divide et impura, is usually attributed to Philip the second of Macedonia, circa 350 BC. Divide and conquer, or divide and rule. It is startlingly effective at an operating principle. By keeping various groups all fighting among themselves, you distract them from who their real enemy is, which is you. Uh, Germany and Belgium used the strategy to rule the nation of Rwanda 
creating uh, tensions amongst the otherwise peaceable and peace-loving Hutu and Tutsi tribes in order to manipulate them by way of those tensions. Uh, they were startlingly successful. Um, however, those tensions continued well after independence, resulting eventually in the Rwandan genocide of 1994, wherein maybe up to one million people were killed and half a million women were raped. And there are numerous, many other examples from all over the world, divide and rule. So here's a question for you just for the moment. You don't have to, you don't have to offer or speak out loud what your answer is. I'd just like you to think about it for a moment. What is the most powerful organization on earth? What is the most powerful organization on earth? The answer actually is obvious. It is the church. Verse 16 of today's reading <laughs> supplies everything you need to know. Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Who's more powerful than God? If what Paul writes is true, if the Holy Spirit really is with us, if we are in possession of the same power as Jesus of Nazareth, who could possibly stand against us? What mountain or door or obstacle could possibly stand if that organization was simply to fall to her knees and pray? Imagine. In fact, it's hard to imagine. Unimaginable power. Unimaginable power to bless, to heal to restore, to renew, to reconcile, to recreate, to raise the dead. It would be a problem then, wouldn't it? It, it would be a problem if that organization were divided against themselves. That, that would be a crying shame. We are reading together from uh, Perth's... Uh, from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians this morning, and uh, Naomi read to us chapter 3. And um, as we've seen over the last two weeks, the church in Corinth was split and divided into various fractions. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas. I'm with Christ. Um, we get no clue from the letter itself as to what that factionalism was kind of based on or what it looked like. But actually, when we think about what those names are usually attached to, we can guess. And in fact, it's not, it's not hard to guess what that factionalism looked like. I'm with Paul! Um, Paul, we remember, was not one of the twelve. He played no part in Christ's earthly ministry. And in all of his correspondence that's been preserved for us in the New Testament, Paul has almost nothing to say about what Jesus of Nazareth actually did and what he actually said. Rather, Paul's teaching is focused on the significance of Jesus, who he is, and what God has done through him. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. 
Apollos, we remember from the book of Acts, was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. He was probably an expert um, on how Jesus of Nazareth fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He was able, we remember, to vigorously refute his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas! Uh, Cephas, also known as Simon Peter, was the chief of the original twelve. His teaching, we understand, was faithfully written down for us by uh, John Mark in Rome, forming for us what we now call the Gospel of Mark, um, a gospel full of miracles, signs, and wonders. I'm with Cephas. So then, um, it's perhaps easy to imagine. Um, imagine that it, one group in your church is constantly studying Paul's letter to the Romans. Another group is constantly studying the Old Testament, looking for typology. And a third group is constantly studying the Gospel of Mark. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, that each group would, would develop distinct forms of spirituality, distinct emphases, and that actually it might be initially a little bit challenging to reconcile those differences. Not impossible, just requiring some hard work. Well, Paul doesn't do the hard work for them. Um, rather, he says in verses 21 to 23, it all belongs to you. It's all yours. The whole banquet. Rather than helping them with any particular theological distinctives that may have been separating the groups, he simply asks them to think theologically about who their leaders are. Each leader, each one serving God, each one with a different insight into what Paul calls the mysteries of God. That is the gospel. The things that in the past had been un unclear and unknown but is now crystal clear. God's saving work for humanity through Jesus, his son. Uh, Apollos um, uh, functioned as a pastor teacher. Paul functions primarily as an evangelist. They, different insights because different leaders have different jobs. Paul, in chorus, indeed, functioned primarily as an evangelist. That is to say, someone who led non-Christians to faith in Jesus Christ, planting seeds of faith, so to speak. Apollos functioned more in the capacity of, say, a pastor-teacher, watering young plants, so to speak, giving, giving them what they needed as young Christians. In contrast to Paul, Apollos spoke to Christians primarily, not to non-Christians. Now, obviously, there would have been substantial overlap. Paul didn't stop ministering to people once they'd come to faith in Christ, and Apollos didn't refuse to speak to people unless they had come to faith in Christ. But in general terms, it was useful to recognize a distinction between them in terms of their core tasks, in terms of their primary occupational calling. And in all of this, Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize that their Christian leaders can be frail and fallible. He offers himself as an example of one who got it right, not because he's infallible, but because 
he knows that he was right in making Jesus Christ and Christ crucified the absolute foundation of all that he does. And he was right to do that, but he knows he was right to do that, not, not, not by way of some inherent genius. In fact, the exact reverse. He was heading in the opposite direction before God, God intervened. It was simply by the astonishing kindness of God, the grace of God. God spoke to him, revealed his gospel. It was by the grace of God that Paul was able to get that right. Others will be building on his foundation, discipling Christians as they themselves will figure to be best. Um, in, in his parable, uh, Paul imagines elders and leaders like builders who build a building using different materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Three of these materials would survive fire, three would be consumed by fire. And that may prompt in us the question, what does Paul have in mind? What, what do these things stand for? What kind of things would be a good building? And what kind of things mean, mean straw or wood or hay? Well, Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't elaborate. elaborate. I, I think that the New Testament provides all we need for understanding the nature of authentic Christian ministry and leadership. It's all there. It's just in the rest of the New Testament. But it's not Paul's focus here. He doesn't elaborate. Paul's focus is on an eternal reality. That on the day, on the day, the day Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, the day where everything will be laid bare, and the day in which every secret will be made known, on that day it will be clear as to who was right and who was wrong in the what and the how of their ministries. And in contrast to Jesus' parable about wise and foolish builders, here in Paul's parable, both the wise and the foolish builders will be saved because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But those who did good will be rewarded and those who did bad will suffer loss. Um, why is Paul saying this? This is surely a shot across the bow uh, of the leaders of the church in Corinth, a not-too-subtle warning for them to take a hard look at what they're doing insofar as any of them may be creating tensions, fueling divisions, being divisive. They were on exceedingly dangerous ground. To divide God's church is to work towards its destruction. And if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy that person. And along the way, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to recognize a few things about themselves. Primarily, primarily, they must understand that as Christ's church, they are God's temple. For God's spirit dwells in them. Uh, Paul will, uh, later on in this letter, Paul will consider how each and every individual believer, um, how they are a temple of the Holy Spirit, how our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's not the point he's making here. The point that he's making here is saying something related but distinct but different, that we corporately, as the church, are God's temple. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the temple of God was the place where God resided and the place where you met with God, the place you encountered God, the place where God's presence was manifest frequently, tangibly. In the days of Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus understood himself to be that very place. Jesus was the place. Jesus was the man, the person through whom you met God and encountered him for yourself. Manifest and literally tangible. In our age, post-Pentecost, the church is the place where God resides, where you meet with God, where you encounter him, where his presence we expect to be manifest tangibly in the work of the Holy Spirit. The place, church is the place where you encounter God, not meaning a building, but rather the people. Um, this building that we're currently all sitting in is not a church. It was built in 1917, and it is not a church, and it is not God's house. Because you are the church, and you are his building, his field, his house, the place where God resides. And therefore, biblically speaking, if you want a friend or a relative, somebody you know, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, the obvious thing to do is to invite them to church. By definition, the most powerful organization on earth, the global fellowship of the believers in Jesus Christ. And when it comes to power, whew, we know where real power resides, don't we? Um, where does real power reside? We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. Real power resides in loving enemies, in praying for those who persecute, in forgiving others when they wrong us. Uh, real power lies in sacrificial kindness and love, in serving each other and one another and others, in laying down our lives on the cross. That's where real power resides. So that's one thing that they need to recognize about themselves primarily, that they are God's temple for the Spirit dwells in them. Another thing that Paul wants the Corinthian, Corinthian Christians to recognize is that they are infantile. They are infantile Christians if there are divisions among them. Insofar as Satan has been able effectively to use offense, jealousies and rivalries and envies, ambitiousness and quarreling so as to divide them, they are behaving like toddlers. It's infantile. And in response to this, Paul gives them an imperative, a command. Verse 18, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Um, he's not suggesting that those who consider themselves to be smart should start acting like idiots. Uh, nor is he suggesting that those who consider themselves to be discerning should start injecting a little bit more folly into their lives. He's not suggesting either of those two things, but rather he is saying, he is commanding, that those who consider themselves to be of the status of leaders they must bring themselves down a peg or three. Take the low status position. 
the position of one whom others feel that they can safely ignore. And when we stand praying, if we hold anything against anyone, let us forgive them, so that our Heavenly Father may forgive us also our sins. Beware of offence. Offence is difficult to spot, but incredibly dangerous. Once we feel offended, walls go up, doors close, drawbridges are raised, trenches are dug, usually before we are ever even consciously aware of it. Beware offence. It's actually quite hard to spot when you're offended. But we, we, we should, you know, um, I work hard on trying to spot it when it happens to me. Oh, I've been offended. Watch out, that's dangerous. We should teach it to children. If you're, if you're offended and you know it, clap your hands. If you're offended and you know it, clap your hands. Um, that, that's metacognition. That's an advanced, an advanced, sophisticated adult skill. To know what it is that you're feeling and to be able to label it, to be happy and to know it, is two important things um, that most adults can't do. Uh, but it's really good to be able to, uh, to spot offense. God offends the mind to reveal the heart. Uh, that's not a biblical proverb. I, I, I think it comes uh, from the Pentecostal denominations, but I love it. It's, it's great. God offends the mind to reveal the heart. In other words, if I feel offended, it is usually because somebody has injured my pride. In other words, they have injured the way in which I boast about myself to myself, the way I flatter myself to myself. They've, they've insulted that, usually accidentally. However, if I already know myself to be a fool, there's no harm in somebody else pointing that out to me. The Global Fellowship of Believers in Jesus Christ, the church, is the most powerful organization on earth. And yet, we are deeply divided. We are infantile. Historically, there have been three major divisions, um, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. But each one of them are subdivided into vast numbers of subgroups. I understand that there may be well over 20,000 Protestant denominations. I'm Reformed Evangelical. I'm Roman Catholic. I'm Presbyterian. I'm AOG. I'm Charismatic Evangelical. I'm a liberal Anglo-Catholic. Is Christ divided? Was Martin Luther crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of John Newman? Again, as previously stated, diversity isn't the problem. Diversity is usually from God. Divisiveness and division are problems. We should sit loose to labels. I don't think we need to be rid of them altogether. They have some function, but we must be very careful not to be penned in by them. What might that look like? Well... <clears throat> I uh, recently attended a seminar to hear <coughs> excuse me <coughs> thank you 
I recently attended a seminar to hear British theologian, historian, and priest Gerald Bray speak to the question, what is Anglicanism? And uh, just in case you don't know, and there's absolutely no shame in you not knowing, uh, St. Barnabas is an Anglican church, and I am an Anglican minister, which is why I was interested in the question, what is Anglicanism? Gerald's answer was this. Anglicanism is a concept in search of content. Anglicanism is a concept in search of content. In other words, nobody really knows what it is. In other words, if somebody tells you definitively, oh, Anglicanism is such and such, they are probably wrong. The English reformers of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries did not think of themselves as Anglicans, but rather as Christians seeking to restore to the church her historic biblical purity. Gerald pointed out that in the 20th century, the two most influential Christian books were Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Basic Christianity by John Stott. Both books were written by Anglicans, but they didn't mention Anglicanism or the Anglican Church. I, I think we could actually add a third book to that same pattern, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, also amazingly influential, written by an Anglican who doesn't mention that fact, nor does he need to. Anglicanism is at her loveliest when she's not thinking about Anglicanism, but rather simply about what it means to know Jesus Christ and him crucified and to love him with all of our hearts, our minds, and our strengths. Um, there are strengths and weaknesses to all of the different traditions and denominations. But all of the strengths of all of the different denominations are ours, as long as we're focusing on simply being Christians. Yes, by all means, when it comes to prayer, let's read the Catholic authors. Uh, when it comes to zealous evangelism, let's go and attend Pentecostal services. When it comes to social justice, let's be inspired by the liberals. Yes. And when it comes to doctrine, well, actually, maybe the evangelicals are useful after all. Paul's word to us today is, unite and rule. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air for to which that you were created. To rule. That's God's purpose for humanity. Unite and rule. For everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So unite and rule. And the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.